you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, specifically to the ninth chapter. We'll be finishing up the ninth chapter this morning. It's the end of the year, and we'll be ending a mini-series within our series on 2 Corinthians. As you know, we have spent um, several weeks, several months now, in our study of Paul's uh, exposition about Christian giving and generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul took uh, an incident that was very practical and before him of a need for relief for the saints in Jerusalem to give us, not only the Corinthians, but you and me, what is the most uh, expansive theology, systematic theology of giving and generosity in the Scriptures. And so we pick up this morning at 2 Corinthians 9, chapter 6, and we will take it through to the end of the chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times... You may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Oh Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless your word to us. That it would become clear to us that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our minds and our hearts. That we would take your word to heart. That it would not just be something that we learn from, but that it would change us and make us more and more into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
So we come now to the end of this section on generosity and giving. And we have come to see that generosity is a spiritual exercise. Perhaps when we first began these two chapters, you would have thought of generosity and giving as one of the most material things that a believer can do. Because after all, it involves usually money and resources. But Paul has told us that generosity is a spiritual exercise. And more important than that, generosity is founded in the grace of God. It begins with God's grace. And now this morning... We are to see how we are to set our hearts and minds as God would have us. What our thoughts should be as we think about generosity. So this morning we look at what it means to have cheerful generosity, willing generosity. And Paul gives us, I think, three elements of cheerful generosity. The first is that it is intentional. Cheerful generosity is intentional. It is purposeful. The second is that cheerful generosity is trusting. We cannot be cheerful givers unless we trust the Lord and our trust has been placed in Him for all that we are and all that we have. And then third, cheerful generosity is expectant. We expect to see what God will do through the grace of giving. Intentional, trusting, and expectant. Let's begin then by looking at verse 6 with what it means to have intentionality in our generosity. Verse 6 begins with a short phrase that Paul uses several times in his letters. And it's translated quite well here. The point is this. We might translate it, remember this. Or if I were paraphrasing Paul, hey, listen up. You remember all that I've said. The point that I'm making is this. And so this calls to our minds the context of this entire section on generosity and giving. We cannot forget that generosity is the result of God's work. It is evidence of God's work in our lives. We cannot forget that it is grace, specifically the grace of God, that reproduces graciousness in us. It begins with God and comes to us. And that our giving, our generosity, is a spiritual testimony to the work of God. Now, when we see this, we need to understand as well what God's grace is like. That God's grace is without measure. It has no limit. God is not stingy with his grace. He's not measuring it out. It's not as if we all need to pack in and get up to the front as quickly as we can because God might run out of grace before he gets to the back. Now, that's not how the Lord works. His grace is overflowing. You may recall last week when we looked at the prologue to John's gospel in our Christmas message, we saw that grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. More grace than we can handle, you might say. And so our generosity, 
our graciousness should also be similarly without measure. We should not be hoarding it, being miserly with it. We'll see more about that in a moment. We've also seen that God himself is the cheerful giver. God gives willingly, graciously, cheerfully, joyously to his people. And that we are to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ in his generosity, in his joyous giving. So Paul then comes now here in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul gives us an analogy. He deliberately chooses this. He chooses it because it's very practical. Because it's very understandable. Even for those of us who live in the fourth largest city in America, who are not farmers by trade, we understand the principle of farming. We've seen farmers. We've seen how they plow the field and they scatter the seed and then the crops grow and then they gather them in. We understand this principle. And so Paul gives us this analogy that our generosity and our giving is to be like the farmer sowing seed. Now that tells us a few things immediately. That generosity is not to be spontaneous. Now, everywhere within the sound of my voice, charitable organizations are having a fit because they rely on your spontaneity. They rely on tugging at your heartstrings just at the right moment when you had no intention to give, no intention to be generous. They flash images of need in front of you and they have a pitch. You might expect the pastor to come up and start weeping and telling you how we can't do God's work unless you give and you have to give right now. Don't even think about it, the pastor might say. If you think about it, you're not being spiritual. Just open up your wallet, open up your checkbook and put it in the offering. The less thinking you do, the better. The only problem with that is Paul gives us the exact opposite impression. He tells us that our generosity is to be deliberate. It's to require forethought and action. That's what the farmer does. The farmer doesn't just go out in the field one day and decide to harvest crops. No, he plans which crops will go where. This is where the corn will go. This is where the beans will go. This is where this will go. And he goes and he prepares the soil. He breaks it up so that it will become receptive to the seed and he gathers up the seed and then he sows the seed and then he waters the land and then he watches the crops grow and then he collects it's all very deliberate and planned i didn't realize this until i lived in mississippi for a time but some of the most technical scientific studies in college are agriculture there is an incredible amount of science behind tomatoes. Do you know that? I know someone who has a PhD in tomatoes. Not that that's not what they call it at the school, but you should be glad he has a PhD in tomatoes because he has worked with his scientific know-how to come up with weather-resistant, insect-repellent tomato crops so that they are more bountiful, so they use less resources, and so that we can gain from that. Farming is a very deliberate, planned, scientific endeavor. And that's 
what Paul is comparing our generosity to. And he sets up deliberately a contrast here between sowing sparingly and bountifully. Now, you should have in your mind when someone says sowing sparingly, that it is a miserly way of doing something, a stingy way of doing something. You might picture in your mind's eye the farmer with a huge bag of seed. And as he walks in the field, he puts his finger and his thumb in the bag and he plucks out one seed and he drops it. And then he goes forward a few feet and he plucks his, puts his finger and his thumb in again and plucks out one seed and he drops it. And so he goes being very careful with his seed, trying to use as little as possible to retain as much seed as possible. And what Paul says is, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. Do you want to go at harvest time to that farmer's field? There'll be four tomatoes in the whole field. There'll be no corn. But, Paul says, if you sow bountifully, if you take your whole fist and shove it in the bag and scatter the seed around, and you use the entirety of the seed, you hold nothing back. You are generous, bountiful with that seed. Now remember, seed is not worthless. No farmer throws away his seed. He doesn't burn it up. He gathers it throughout the year because he knows how important seed is to the whole endeavor. So by sowing bountifully, he's not saying that seed is worthless. I don't care about seed. What he is doing is he is looking to the harvest. He's sowing bountifully so that he will reap bountifully. He has a view that is long term. He's not looking for quick results. He's looking to the harvest. Now, this is important. Think about your own seed, as it were. When we give, when we are generous with someone, someone has a need, or we hear of a need somewhere else, and we give to it, even if we are okay with giving to it, even if we are glad to give, oftentimes we sit and think, well, that's gone forever. I'm glad at least it went to a good cause, but what I gave, that's out the door. Never going to see that back again. I hope I have enough left over because there's nothing coming back from this. Your flesh tells you that what you give is lost. Scripture tells you that it's not. That it's seed that you sow that will bring a harvest that you will reap. It's not lost forever. It's seed sown. If you don't believe the Apostle Paul, hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, that is give, it will be measured back to you. You will reap. Paul puts it in a different way in Galatians chapter 6. He says, whatever one sows, that, will be, that also he will reap. Let us not grow weary of well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And there Paul is specifically not talking about resources and money. He's talking about time, effort, ministry. He's saying don't grow weary in doing good, because in due time you will reap. Making 
a difference with our generosity requires a commitment, a plan. It's intentional. And that intentionality goes beyond our plan to our attitude. We have an intentional attitude with our giving. You'll notice what Paul says here in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you see that generosity and giving is an individual responsibility? Paul doesn't say each man. He doesn't say each family or each congregation. He says each one. It's a very generic pronoun. Each one. And so what that means is we need to be cultivating generosity from a young age. Now, I realize that no six or eight or ten year old will be able to give in monetary terms what a 45 or 50 year old person in their prime earning years can give. But they can cultivate generosity. They can sow bountifully. They can be generous with their friends and with their family. They can be generous with their things, not holding on to them tightly. That's what Paul is telling us. And this giving, this generosity, should not be casual, but it should be conscious. Generosity is not to be impulsive. It's not to be done under emotional pressure or manipulation. You won't hear that from this pulpit. We tell you that you have opportunities to give each week as a part of our worship, because that's a part of worship. But we don't try to manipulate you and tell you we have great needs, and if you don't give, bad things are going to happen. Because Paul says that's not biblical generosity and giving. The proper attitude is one of decided giving. It is one of inward resolve and purpose. Paul says that each one is to give as he decided. And this word decided is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean to make a decision. It means to decide beforehand. You are to cultivate generosity even before you know it's needed. You are to decide ahead of time what to give. You might think of it this way. Do you have a favorite restaurant where you like to go and eat? Or perhaps a favorite food? So you go out to the restaurant and you have decided ahead of time what you're going to eat. You don't even need to see the menu, right? You go in and you know what you want and you get it. Now for me, that's a New York strip steak. I know what I want, if that's what they serve. And I go in, and I don't want to be distracted by a menu. I don't want to be distracted by a ribeye, or a pork chop, or God forbid, a piece of fish. I want to get my New York strip steak. And I have decided ahead of time. I've purposed it in my mind. That's what Paul says you should be doing with your generosity. You should be thinking about it beforehand. It should be purposeful. It should be intentional. And then this way your giving will be not reluctant, but eager. Paul says that we are not to give reluctantly. This word reluctantly means with pain or with tears. That is, with the sorrow of parting with something. If the only way that you can give is with tears saying, oh, I know I promised to give this, but this really hurts me. I guess I have to give because I promised. Oh, I feel compelled. I have to keep my promise. Keep your money. God doesn't want it. We're not to give painfully under compulsion. 
We're not to give motivated by guilt, as if somehow if we don't give, God will smite us. We're not to give hoping that we'll be thought of as super spiritual by others. No, we're not to do it under compulsion, but freely, Paul says. And we are to give joyfully. You are blessed by giving. The grace of God is at work in you through generosity and giving. And we seek to please the Father. God loves a cheerful giver. Now you have to understand, we'll take just a brief aside. There are several ways that God is described as loving someone. This love here is not the love of redemption. It's not redeeming love. It's not as if you put your dollar in the till and God loves you then and will redeem you. No, this is the smile of a father upon his child. He already loves you more than you could ever imagine. He delights in seeing his grace at work in you. That's the love that comes. You may say, but pastor, I don't know if I can give like that. I, I, I give. I even tithe. And I know most Christians don't tithe. But it's hard for me to give, especially when I do my budget. I'm tempted to, to give to God last because things are really tight. And, and when I give off the top, when I give to God first, it's too hard. And, and I become bitter. And it's, it's hard. What should I do? Should, should I stop giving because I can't give with the right attitude? One minister puts it, I think, the best way. In what area of life should you sin in order to stop sinning? The answer is none. We're called to give. We're called to give with the right attitude. We don't sin in one way to avoid sinning in another way. No, what you ought to do is to pray that the Lord would give you a generous heart. Because the only way you'll get one is by God's grace anyway. If the Holy Spirit isn't at work in your life, you will not be a generous, joyful giver. It only comes by God's grace. The second thing that we see is that cheerful giving, cheerful generosity, is trusting. Look with me at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. We give with confidence in the Lord. Just as we're scattering that seed, knowing that God will give us seed for next year's harvest, we are confident that the Lord is more generous with us than we are with others. Why is that? Because we know who God is. Paul tells us who God is. God is powerful. He is able. He is not just able to do things barely. He is mighty and powerful. And he is wise. He knows more than we do. He is generous, more generous than we could be. And God is able to make us generous givers. As a matter of fact, what has God done for us? He is the one who has broken into our lives. If you this morning know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, it is only because God has broken into your life and shown you your sin and shown you the Savior. That he has provided. God has broken into our lives to make us anew. 
He is the one who has made grace abound in us, Paul says, to overflow. This word abound that Paul uses, it's a very interesting word. I think the best example or illustration of it is, do you remember when Jesus feeds the thousands? He gets some boy with a lunchbox, with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. And he blesses it, and they feed thousands. And then what do they do after everyone has eaten more than they can eat? They go and they gather up the leftovers. And the leftovers are not only more than what they had to begin with, they are, they are a sumptuous feast in themselves. That leftovers is the abounding of the work of Jesus. Now I want you to picture that what Jesus does in your life is not just give you more fish and bread than you can handle. He gives you more grace than you can handle. You will never fall short of the grace of God. And do you see what God does? Look at all of the alls here in this verse, over and over again. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every, it's the same word, all, in all good works. God gives us enough, all sufficiency. In every way we have enough, in all things. And at all times we have this. And he equips us to abound in every good work. This is what God can do. Now, God doesn't just tell us he can do this. He tells us that what he has done in us is allow us through our generosity and our giving to give evidence of God's work in us. Look with me at verse 9. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now I think if I asked for a show of hands or for you to write on a piece of paper, what, who is that verse describing? I imagine that most of us would say God. God's the one who distributes freely. He gives to the poor and His righteousness surely endures forever. There's one problem with that. That would be a wrong answer. Because Paul is actually quoting Psalm 112 here. And in Psalm 112, this describes the godly man. The one who fears the Lord. The one who trusts Him by faith. Who is saved by the work of God. He is the one who distributes freely. Who gives to the poor. As evidence of what God has done in his life. He is generous to a fault. And this is another basic principle, isn't it? That actions speak louder than words. Remember, this is an evidence of our salvation, not the cause of it. Anyone can talk a good game. It's acting on it that matters. Husbands, ask your wives if all that they care about is hearing you say, I love you. They like to hear that. It's important you say it. But you've got to act on it as well. It's important for you to hug her, to give her a kiss, to help her around the house, to do things for her, to buy her flowers occasionally, to show her that what you say is true. That's what Paul is telling us here. Generosity does for the Christian. It shows who we are, the fruit of our heart is found in our generosity. These actions are to give freely, to give generously, to give to those who cannot repay. Look at what 
the psalmist did Paul say? He has given to the poor. He doesn't seek their advantage. The godly man in Israel would give, not hoping to get, but to help others. Could you imagine being a lender in Israel? When every seven years, all debts were wiped clean? Could you imagine that? But yet, God calls us to be generous. And the righteousness of one who is changed by God and is generous endures forever. This is, Paul might put it this way, a sure investment. Now, some of you may be very cautious investors. And you tell your financial manager or your broker or yourself, I only want to invest in things that are safe. I want the safest bonds, the safest stocks, the safest uh, deposit accounts. I don't need a lot of growth in my investments, but I don't want to lose any money. I want every year it to grow. And that can be a good strategy, unless the economy collapses, as has happened several times over the past few decades. Even the safest investments are not sure. But what Paul tells you is that this is a sure investment. The investment of generosity, of sowing your seed, it is sure. Because you are investing in a righteousness that endures forever. It is proof of your profession of faith. The third and final thing that we see about cheerful generosity is that it is expectant. It looks to what God will do. In verse 10, Paul writes, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. If in verse 8, Paul tells us what God can do, in verses 10 and 11, he tells us what God will do. It's a simple future tense. It describes a promise of God. And again, Paul uses this harvest analogy. It is God who gives seed. It is God who gives bread. It is God who gives the surplus. God is in charge of the whole thing. That's what Paul means when he quotes Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10, in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 9. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. God is in charge of everything. Now, we need, I think, to take a moment to resist one of the most pernicious and horrible errors in our world today that claims to be Christian. It says, you must give, because if you give, then God will bless you and increase your wealth. And so you have to give, starting by giving with me. You could give me $10, and then God will give you $100, but wouldn't it be better if you gave me $1,000, and then God will give you $10,000? No, wait, give me $10,000, and you do the math what God will put in your bank account. Isn't that wonderful? Look, it says right here in the Bible, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Don't you want your seed to be multiplied? Don't you want to grow and be blessed? You've heard me say this before. Every word in the Bible 
is important. It does not say that God will multiply your seed, period. You see, when we read that, we think, my bank account goes up. If I'm generous, I might get a nicer car someday. That lake house I always wanted, that can be mine if I'm only generous. The problem is, that completely defeats the principles of generosity we've been talking about for months. It's not grace-produced. It's not gospel-driven. It's not God-focused or honoring. It's about me and what I can get. Well, the good news is, the text doesn't say that. The text says, He will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. As you are generous, you will be enriched in order to be even more generous. If I can put it this way in a tagline that you can remember, generosity increases your standard of giving, not your standard of living. That's what Paul says here. It is about making you more able to be more generous and be a greater blessing to others. And these blessings that we receive are not infallibly and always material. They are spiritual because remember, giving and generosity is a spiritual exercise. It is the result of the grace of God and it is the outworking of God's grace in us. And it allows us to enjoy a covenant community. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is what giving is about. We expect spiritual blessings and the Lord to work through us. But there's Another thing we should expect, we shouldn't just expect generosity and giving to affect us. We should expect God to be glorified. Remember the context of all of this. It's that there was a need in the churches in Jerusalem and Judea. Churches made up of those who had grown up ethnically Jewish. And Paul is now appealing to those who were ethnically Gentiles to give in support of the churches in Judea. Now, why is this important? Because there was a, a break, a rift between these two segments of the church. You see this throughout the book of Acts. You see this even in the letters of Paul, that there was a suspicion between those who had grown up of Jewish heritage and those who had not. What better way to heal that rift than to have Gentiles help people of Jewish nationality? What better way to wipe away suspicion, to show the unity of the body of Christ, and we're all in this together mentality, than to have the Gentiles support the Jews? And so our generosity goes beyond the material, Paul says. It has a material aspect, but it also produces thanksgiving. He says it not only supplies the needs, but it also produces thanksgiving, but it also produces glory to God. In verse 13, God is glorified through our generosity because the gospel is on display in all of its glory. Paul puts it this way. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God. 
because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God is glorified through our generosity because the gospel is seen. Do you want to glorify God? Do you want to show your faith to others? Do you want to have others see the gospel? That Paul's telling you, cultivate generosity in your life. This is how we bring glory to God. Our generosity is about much more than material needs and transactions. It is a way for the Lord to work grace in you. It is a way to display the gospel. It is a way to be more like Jesus. Be cheerful. Be generous, God's word says, so that you might be more like Jesus, who was generous, who withheld nothing, who became poor, that we might be rich. Brothers and sisters, be more like Jesus. Let's pray.